0: Conspiracy show with Richard Seren from Zuma Radio, AM seven forty.
1: Welcome to the broadcast, and once again, welcome to KGBR FM, Medford, Oregon. Our new affiliate out there in the Oregon is, I believe, the Beaver State, wonderful state. I've been out there several times, and uh, I remember driving through Grants Pass. We were, we were producing the, uh, the, the second season of our television show and very mountainous, beautiful, rugged uh, country. And we had to stop for the night because I had to do the TV show and we needed to get into a hotel uh, desperately, you know, that had reliable internet so I could do the show by, by Skype. And uh, I don't know if you, you may remember this night, uh, the, the cameraman... A couple of the uh, – well, the, the director, my good friend uh, Jalal Murray, was uh, with us and also uh, a cameraman. And we were only going to stay in the hotel uh, you know, just for a few hours. So I could do my show, grab a couple of hours sleep, and then get back on the road and race down to L.A. We had to catch a flight. We had been up in uh, Olympia, Washington, interviewing a gentleman whose name escapes me anyway. It was, it was for a, an episode we did on time travel. So we're in this hotel in Grants Pass, and I'm doing my radio show. But the cameraman and, uh, and Jalal are asleep, dog-tired. You know, they've been driving all day. And the cameraman starts to snore. And Tim, you weren't working uh, with me then. Uh, I forget who the producer was, but people started calling in asking, what is that sound? <laughs> and I was trying to cover the microphone and speak into it uh all three of us in one room and the snoring was incredible. And, uh, I don't know if you've, if you've heard that show, maybe, maybe you heard it on a podcast or what have you. But, uh, I just remembered the, uh, my producer all in a panic because people were emailing and calling saying, what is that sound? Is, has someone fallen asleep on the air? They thought my producer had fallen asleep on the air. Anyway, that's my, uh, more, my Oregon story. Uh, but I, again, welcome to KGBR FM in Medford, Oregon. Uh, We're saying goodbye to summer, obviously, just a stone's throw from here. The Canadian National Exhibition, the Grand Old Lady by the Lake, uh, getting ready. One more night, I guess, one more day tomorrow, and that's it. And uh, they take down the Ferris wheel and, you know, say goodbye to the corn dogs for uh, another year. Uh, My little guys are heading out, going to send off summer with a bang. The mighty Aphrodite is taking them to an amusement uh, park not too far from here, uh, Canada's Wonderland. And they're going to do the roller coasters or whatever. We're a little concerned because, uh, you know, the height requirement is about 48 inches. And I don't know if North is going to get on um, many of those rides. His brother might sneak on a few. Anyway, say goodbye to summer, as I say, for another year. And meanwhile, uh, we have, of course, nothing seems to uh, change. Summer's come and go and uh, war's come and go. And it looks like the U.S. is gearing up for another one as they consider a response to what it calls a chemical weapon attack by Syria's Bashar al-Assad regime uh, that killed hundreds of civilians. And reliable Middle Eastern sources say they have evidence, however, that the culprits actually were the rebel forces trying to take over the government. That's right. You're not hearing about that in the mainstream media. Secretary of State John Kerry is telling everybody that'll listen that the, uh, the use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime is a cowardly crime, a moral obscenity that shocked the world's conscience. He claims the Obama administration has undeniable evidence that the Assad government was culpable in the use of chemical weapons on civilians back in October or August uh, 21st in, uh, in the Damascus suburbs, which uh, were sort of being controlled by the rebels, and uh, reports that the Obama administration is considering military strike against the Assad government uh, continues to circulate. However, Obama has now promised that he's going to at least take this to Congress for a vote. I believe they're in recess until September the 9th. Uh, So we shall see what is in store. But again, let's talk about the evidence we're not hearing about that it is not the Assad regime responsible for these chemical attacks, but in fact, the rebels or I think a more apt description is Insurgents, And uh, to help us in this regard, a good friend of the program, it's been a while since we chatted, Webster Tarpley is an historian, a critic of American foreign policy, best known for his book, George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, 1992 that came out. Tarpley was born in Pittsville, Massachusetts in 1946. In 1966, he graduated summa cum laude from Princeton University, where he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa. He was a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Turin, Italy, later teaching English at Cornell University. In 1970-1980, he appeared as a commentator for Teleradio Soleil, a television station in Rome... And from 1984 to 1986, he was, in 1996 rather, he was a correspondent in what, in uh, of, sorry, in, let me get the dates right here. From 1984 to 1996, he was a, a correspondent in Washington. In 1997, he published an anthology entitled Against Oligarchy Essays and Speeches from 1970 to 1996. These books can be consulted on the internet at www.tarpley.net. His 9 11 Synthetic Terror is considered the Bible of the 9-11 truth movement, He and sold, it, it sold over 20,000 copies. His two books on Obama are virtually the only critical ones in print from a progressive viewpoint. And most recently, he has published an e-book entitled Subverting Syria. Webster Tarpley, welcome once again to The Conspiracy Show. How are you?
2: Thank you very much, Richard. I, subverting Syria is not really my uh, book. I'm not sure where you... Where you got that. But what I did publish last year was one called uh, Just Too Weird Bishop Romney and the Mormon Takeover of America with uh, uh, Polygamy, Theocracy, and Conversion. My apologies. I I
1: think that it was linked to um, a a website that featured your books. My apologies. Okay. But we are here to talk about Syria.
2: Absolutely. And congratulations on your program and your, your network.
1: It's we're building it brick by brick. We're getting the 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 word out there across America. Webster, great. So uh, let's let's back up. Um, First of all, before we talk about this chemical attack, August twenty first, let's talk about uh, the Assad regime. What are what are your impressions? You've been to Syria, yes. What are your impressions of? Uh, Bashar al-Assad, because I don't, I don't put him in the, the... He's a typical Middle Eastern ruler. He's a strong man, to be sure, but I don't put him in the same camp as a, as a Gaddafi or one of these madmen. He seems to me to be a very rational, reasoned human being. Richard, I would, I would be very cautious with this
2: madman stuff, because um, these, these terms are thrown around by Western leaders who are themselves uh, open to question in terms of their sanity and their morality and so forth, right? We don't need to go much further than Bush the Younger. I suppose we should go to Bush the Elder. I've written about about both of them. Uh, Gaddafi was somebody who built the largest uh, water irrigation and drinking water project in the world, the great man-made river. Uh, and I think one of the reasons for invading Libya was to get a hold of that water, which is a very... Um, valuable commodity in the Middle East. Um, what you have are these regimes that were modeled on Nasser of Egypt. They were military. They were authoritarian, to be sure, but they were anti-imperialist. They, were, they tried to have economic development, and they also tried to have this, this element of um, price subsidies and putting a floor under the poorest people. So they had a strong element of economic populism. Now Syria under Hafez Assad the elder had um, I think was a, was a much different proposition than what you had today. This was a, a country that um, was very much a dictatorship. Um, the other problem you have though is you see that some of these countries have a, a tragic dilemma between dictatorship and absolute civil war and chaos, and and I I think that's a that's a you know a question that that cannot be easily. Answered, but it certainly shouldn't be dodged. Anyway, as as of the death of Hafez Assad around 2000, you have his son, uh, who I believe is is indeed a reformer, um, not in in the way that you know, would satisfy a lot of people, but certainly a, a reformer uh, in the sense that uh, actually uh, he's a figure very difficult to demonize because he he's very personable, he's rather um, unassuming in some ways but speaks a lot of English, right? lived in London, was an eye doctor in London, has this rather presentable wife and so forth. But the, the main thing is that there's, a, there's a, an establishment there which refuses to follow the dictates of U.S. imperialism. And this was, uh, this was the main crime of Gaddafi. Right? You don't hear anything about the monsters of Saudi Arabia or the monsters of Qatar or the monsters of Bahrain, right? And those are absolute monarchs with, you know, no, no semblance of elections or, or anything else. But somehow they're spared, right? None of them is a madman. None of them is uh, a monster. But I think in reality, those really are the monsters. So what we're left with then is by, you know, a couple of years ago, the, the, con- the, the conclusion of U.S. imperialism with the British and many other NATO thrown in, was that the, the World Economic Depression, which began in 2008, meant that it was no longer possible to tolerate the existence of nation states. And the goal of, of the NATO and U.S. foreign policy since, since the Depression, but even earlier, and you can, you can show this, has been to break up the existing nation states. They talk about mini states, micro states, rump states, failed states secessionism, warlords, you name it, and you can see Sudan carved into two parts, Yugoslavia broken up, and then Serbia carved, Soviet Union carved, desire to carve the Russian Federation, uh, Iraq de facto carved into three, plans to carve Iran and Pakistan into four, five, whatever it is. The British are even willing to do it to themselves, right, with Scotland, in order to, to use that as a kind of a, of a show window for this kind of thing, right? So secessionist movements uh, everywhere, and the the chosen vehicle for this, since you have all these young men who don't find jobs because of the depression, it's easy to recruit them through fanatical uh, salafist preachers and and other you know kinds of uh, demagogues. You can recruit them to these these marauding bands. It's kind of like this, you know, the Thirty Years' War in Europe, right? When a, when an economic crisis means that you've got all these unemployed young young guys running around with, with nothing to do. So what has happened is that the CIA uh, acting on the models that were m- pioneered by John Negroponte in Central America in the 1980s, then brought by Negroponte to Iraq in the, in the previous decade, maybe 10 years ago, his disciple Robert Ford was the one who made sure that that was delivered then in, into Syria. The death squads, in other words, you, you know, I wouldn't call them rebels, I wouldn't call them insurrectionists, they are terrorists. They are death squads. They are uh, people from Al Qaeda, the Nusra Brigade, and so forth. Right? I, I, I refer to them the as insurgents.
1: I refer to them as insurgents because uh, um, the difference here is I think many of them are coming from outside. These are not, you yes, know, necessarily foreign fighters. Yeah. Let Absolutely. me let me uh, take a time out here, Webster. We'll come back and we'll talk about the possibility of war against Syria and the evidence. The mounting evidence, which seems to indicate it's these insurgents, or rebels if you wish, but these insurgents, these outside forces, fighting the Assad regime that are responsible for the chemical attack. Let's come back when we uh, continue our conversation with Webster Tarpley here on The Conspiracy Show. Welcome back. Webster Tarpley is with us. The website www.tarpley.com dot net, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net, and uh, a whole catalog of amazing books there uh, for you, of course, including uh, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, and which, as I said, is considered the Bible of the 9-11 Truth Movement, uh, the unauthorized biography, uh, George Bush, the unauthorized biography, uh, now 20 years later, but still a um, one of those cult classics uh, that, um, you know, every truth-seeker should have on his library shelf. Right now we're talking about uh, Syria, and uh, w- let, me, uh, let me ask you about these uh, insurgents again. Who, who's funding them? Is it the Saudis, as, uh, as we've been told?
2: Yes. They, they're funded by a, a group of, uh, of these reactionary uh, absolute monarchies, right? And these are the most benighted you know, medieval things that exist anywhere in the world. And they foment... You know, mental states, uh, ideologies, right? Salafism or Al Qaedaism, or whatever it is, uh, ar- around the world. Numbers. No, the 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 big fight was between Nasser and the Saudis, right, in the sixties and, and into the seventies, right? Saudi, Nasser with the progressive, pan-Arab nationalism, Arab socialism, anti-imperialism,
1: secularism,
2: then, secularism, right? And then the Saudis, of course, with this monarchy, right? There was. Actual human slavery in Saudi Arabia, officially until 1963, and correspondents who have been to the Gulf tell me there's household slavery in these emirates and so forth today. So the Saudis pay, and then we have this, this little principality, Qatar, right? Gutter, Qatar, which exerts an influence out of all proportion because it's had a kind of crazy... Amir, uh, I, I have to compare him. If you know anything about French history, Philippe Égalité, right? The the member of the French royal family who tried to join the revolution and ride that tiger and use it for his own purposes. Of course, he he ended on the guillotine. But in the case of Qatar, the the Emir who was just sacked was was the most adventurous and crazy guy, and he was he was into you know overthrowing all these countries. So Saudis, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait gets into the act. Um, sometimes Oman and, and others. So what do did, did they do? There's, there's a depression, right? So all these young men out of work. So they bring them in from Chechnya in southern Russia. They bring them in from uh, the Taliban, right? The Taliban of Afghanistan, but especially the Pakistani t- Taliban are heavily represented. You can get people from Somalia who will work and kill people for very little money. You can get them from uh, certainly Libya, right? A lot of the, the, the basic force were death squads that were used to overthrow Gaddafi in 2011, and once Gaddafi had been assassinated, they brought them over. There was actually a uh, an airlift, sea lift from the Benghazi, Derna, Tobruk area of Libya, and that's, that's what Ambassador Stevens was doing there.
1: Right. Uh, Ambassador and, and in certain quotes. Point <laughs> the,
2: pro- the Romney people said, look, he's in there, he's talking to them all the time, let's surprise him, let's, uh, let's have him get uh, you know a nasty surprise and we can use that as as an october surprise against obama. so it's it's a very you could say from you know from indonesia to morocco and from you know the southern edge of the sahara certainly to far into central asia right they they recruit people and they bring them in right and they train them in jordan and they they work with israeli and us and nato uh officers so that it's, it's not, and it never was a peaceful rebellion. I, I was in, in Syria in November 2011 with a, a French um, expert, Thierry Maison, of the Réseau Voltaire of Paris. And we conducted seminars in two places, uh, one in the city of Homs, right, the so-called birthplace of the rebellion, and right. then in a place on the coast called Banyas. Banyas is the next port to the north of Tartus, the the Russian uh, naval base. And in both of these places, it turned out that from the beginning, in other words, from the first demonstration, the absolute first demonstration, there were terrorist gunmen who were planted inside the crowds of peaceful protesters. Yeah, they thought they were, but didn't matter, because they were provocateurs that had been seeded among their ranks who started shooting at the army. And it took quite a while for the army to shoot back. Indeed, Assad at the beginning had given an order don't kill my people. I don't want the army killing people or shooting back. So, they, in some cases, in this Banyas, there was a, a massacre of uh, 50 or 75 members, draftees, right? Young, scared kids, right? Logistical troops, no, no combat training or any. Thing much, but just in they it for the paycheck by these rebels because they were told you couldn't shoot back.
1: Wow, now, uh, and in, in Holmes, I remember you reporting on this that the, the there were these snipers, and this was they were being, uh, you know, the Western media was portraying these snipers as being government forces.
2: No, and, they weren't. As a no, matter of fact, yeah. I went into a, a neighborhood that it was, it was largely Alawite, not only Alawite, but they were Alawites, and uh, I talked to, to people in a hospital there. And, a, and a, a, a woman doctor said, "You know, now I have to go home, and I'm I'm afraid of getting hit by a sniper. They get up on the rooftops." And she also told the story of of a, a friend of hers who had had her her child killed by a sniper shooting through the back of the car. And their only demand was, "Give us the Syrian army. Give us tanks. Give us helicopters that will kill these cowardly, uh, bearded, lunatics that go up on the roof and 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 kill us." So. This is artificial. That's the thing that people have to understand. This is absolutely not a spontaneous grassroots uh, event. Now, of course, there were people who were agitating for, uh, for you know, more democracy. There were you know some very well-off people in the middle class that I met who wanted more democracy. There were also people like Marxists. I met a, a Marxist poet who said, you know, Assad is a softy. We should really deal with these people. Uh, and so forth. But anyway, look, I, I think the thing that people have to understand is this, right? What are the strategic stakes? And then we can maybe look at these questions of proof. What Obama is asking for, if we read the um, resolution that he has sent to Congress, this is a blank check that goes all the way to World War III. This is not tailored, not limited. This is anything but, uh, you know, a, a, a low-level... Uh, you know, carefully calibrated uh, event. The goal of all this is what? It is reg- regime change in Syria. Absolutely, they're going to use cruise missiles to destroy, you know, Assad's dwellings. You know, the the defense ministry, all these buildings that are, that I've been in in uh, in Damascus. The, Damascus, of course, the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. How about that? Yes, the oldest city in the world, and. The, uh, the cradle of the oldest alphabet, right? Not, not pictograph, not, you know, characters in the Chinese way, but an actual alphabet, that's uh, the Syrian. So it's going to be regime change through that. Remember, once you give them the resolution, that's it. They do what they want, right? That's what we learned in Libya. That's what Putin, to his great credit, Russia has learned. Don't authorize military action because any limitations that are supposedly placed on the military action. They will not stand up. So the goal is regime change in Syria, then, or in that process, destroy Hezbollah, the force that restrains the Israelis from going wild in Lebanon and other places, and then quickly on to Iran. So this is already a major regional war. Syria, Hezbollah, Iran. And, of course, look at Iran, three times bigger than uh, Iraq in terms of population, probably four times in terms of area. Uh, this will not be easy. Boots on the ground will be will be required. I'm always I'm always interested to hear people like Obama say, "Well, we've planned this. It's going to be very limited." As von Clausewitz, right, the great German theoretician, writes, once you start with this, there's an animate object that responds to your attacks, and this can mean escalation. This can mean things that get very, very Painful for you.
1: Well, this could very easily pull the Russians into this. Obviously, yes, Syria that's, is...
2: That's exactly what I'd like to point to. That is the, the insanity of this resolution. Uh, we read, authorization for use of United States armed forces, and uh, the president is authorized to use the armed forces of the United States as he wants to, anything he wants, Connection in connection with the use of chemical weapons or other weapons of mass destruction in the Syrian conflict in order to prevent, deter the use or proliferation of such weapons or the transfer of weapons within, to, or from Syria, chemical, biological, or any other WMD. Now, what does that mean? If there's a Russian plane that's coming to Damascus, they can attack that plane. They can say, you've got precursor chemicals in there for sarin gas, or you've got a component for a, you know, a missile that can deliver it, a Chinese plane coming in there, Chinese ships, Russian ships. This is a blank check for World War III. That is why this thing has got, it's got to be absolutely defeated, because Russia, China, I mean, Iran, uh, Syria, Hezbollah, Iran is already more than enough. But then when you get to Russia and China, and insane as it sounds, this is how these lunatics think. And I have to point to this guy, Kerry, the Skull and Bones Society of Yale,
1: like yes. this death cult. The man who, 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 laid, who rolled over in the 2004 election after uh, you know, the fix was in it in Ohio and said nothing.
2: Yeah, I don't know. He, you know he, I mean, I, he, might, he might think that he's on his way to another run for presidency. Let, let, let's see what it is. But if we look at them... The, the presence of Skull and Bones is all the colossal tragedies of the United States and the world of the past you know, 75, 80 years. I, my research shows that Pearl Harbor, the, the debacle, was set up by uh, Colonel Stimson of Skull and Bones with the help of Robert Lovett.
1: Stimson was the war secretary. Uh,
2: yeah, Stimson, and then he had his imps of Satan, who were McCloy and Lovett. So Stimson and Lovett were both from... From Skull and Bones. They're the ones who withheld the intelligence and, and, and wrecked the uh, the defenses. Then we go on to Vietnam. Vietnam is the handiwork of Avril Harriman of Skull and Bones and the Bundy brothers, McGeorge Bundy and William Bundy, Skull and Bones. All these Yale
1: alumnists. Right. Yeah,
2: but all skull and bones, not even Yale. Right. Skull right. and Bones. And then uh we get on to, of course, Bush the Elder, who brings you the first Gulf War, Skull and Bones, and then our dear friend George W. Bush, skull and bones, who brings you the Afghan War and the Iraq War. And when Kerry, I thought I was the only person in the world who noticed this. I wrote something. You can see it at tarpley.net for press TV of Iran. This is a very, very dangerous person. And sure enough, this guy that you see, this this uh, hypocritical, the sallow face of hypocrisy that we see, the haughty Kerry, right? Supposedly the richest man in the Congress because of his wealthy wife, right, Uh, Teresa Heinz.
1: The Heinz ketchup fortunes, yes.
2: She she married that money, but her her origin is Salazar fascism and the the Portuguese colonial world in, I believe, Mozambique. But Salazar fascism, take a look at that. It's one of the nastier variants. Anyway, um, the entire Syrian crisis goes back to June 5th. When the rebels were defeated in the city of Qusayr. right, the, the city was liberated by Syrian army, Hezbollah, and some Iranian advisers. On June 12th, right, Very, you know, less than a week later, or a week later, Kerry attempted to start the bombing. He was sitting in an in a um, principals committee meeting, right, of all the you know the, the secretaries of defense and and uh, CIA and Susan Rice and all these people. And he attempted, he said, look, we've got to start bombing Syria right now, right now, because our, our friends, the death squads, are you know reeling, they're being routed, we've got to get in there and save them, because otherwise you know, we won't have a secret army left in the Middle East. Now, he was stopped by General Dempsey of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who said, no, you don't have a plan, you don't know anything. And that is, I think, that was the, the convergence of Obama at that time and, and, the, and the Pentagon. But he, he tried a coup d'etat. In other words, he tried to do what Henry Kissinger did in, in 1973, which was you know take the U.S. to an all-out thermonuclear alert in the, in the uh, you know, Yom Kippur War in the Middle East. Right? That's, that was Kissinger. Or we've had other things. Right? Um, Al Gore started bombing Serbia in 1999 solo. He didn't ask Clinton. They didn't ask Nixon, did he want to go to red alert? They just, they just did it. And that's what Kerry was trying to do. So this is extremely dangerous uh, character in that way. So they're determined to make this into a war. And by now, Kerry realizes that his job is at stake. I mean, this is just a sideline, but it, it shows also a way that he can deal with it politically What can we say of a Secretary of State who can't get the British to come along? He can't get Canada to come along. He can't get anybody to come along. Do you know how many people there are in the U.S. coalition right now? One. Zero. (laughs) Well, yeah, U.S. What about France? Uh, The French, this is very much up in the air. In other words, I'm talking about people who have made an ironclad, reliable commitment that they're coming, right? And they're coming with troops. In other words, they're going to have Troops in harm's way. They're going to have some firepower, right? Not not declarations of support, because you get those from from Saudi Arabia. But um, people who are committed to it, right? There's good, there's you know there are lots of polls that the French say no. The French National Assembly has to vote. There might be ways to stop Hollande, right? He he might um, you know he might back down. that we'll see that on probably on Wednesday of this week.
1: Listen, let's, let's take a timeout, Webster. When we come back, let's talk about uh, the evidence, which seems to sure. indicate perhaps it's not the Syrian insurgents, uh, or perhaps it's not the Syrian uh, regime of, of uh, Bashar no. al-Assad that has the chemical weapons, it's, 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 it's the insurgents. Says. All right, we'll take a time out uh, And back with Webster Tarpley here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And Webster Tarpley stays with us. His website, www.tarpley.com. T A R P L E Y dot net, and we're talking about uh, Syria. And uh, once again, it seems that the United States is gearing up for another war in the Middle East. And uh, Webster, many people may not remember, but back in May of this year, uh, the UN uh, did their own investigation uh, over in Syria, and there was Uh, a U.N. investigation report that concluded it was the Syrian rebels that were in possession of chemical uh, chemical, uh, weapons and that they were the ones using them on the citizens, not the Assad regime. Why don't people... Why isn't the Western media talking about that U.N. report?
2: (laughs) Well, to ask such a question is to answer it. But here we are in the Western media, so let's... uh Let's talk about it. What you're referring to is Carla Del Ponte, who is a uh, well-known uh, U.N. bureaucrat, right? She's an official, and uh, said this, right, that their finding was that the, the likelihood that they saw was that the, the, um, the, the rebels, right, the death squads, as I call them, were the ones using the, the chemical weapons. Now, there's actually um, there are a number of things on this that are, that are relevant. The State Department position inspired by Skull and Bones Kerry, uh, who should have been fired already earlier this week. But the Kerry line is, these rebels don't have the capability, and they're unable to launch chemical weapons, which is ridiculous. If you get uh, chemical weapons that have been weaponized, they show up as an artillery round. They show up as something that can be fired out of a gun. You don't have to mix anything it's pre-packaged, right it, it's a, it's a battlefield weapon it can't you can't bring test tubes and and alembics out on the on the battlefield right you got to uh have it in a in a form that can be loaded into some gun or, ro- or rocket launcher and then shot off however let's go back uh here we have uh articles uh from Reuters and other sources that tell us that at the end of uh May of this year we had and I guess the Reuters one is the most uh, authoritative um, Reuters reported on May 30th from Ankara Turkish authorities have arrested 12 people and uh, an amount of sarin nerve gas had been found two kilograms so you know almost five pounds of nerve gas sarin had been found and these were syrian rebels linked to the nusra front the al-qaeda terrorist gang right or part of one al-qaeda terrorist gang operating there and uh, they, they were in turkey and the turkish authorities seized almost five pounds of sarin from them now you should also know remember all that that brouhaha about the park in, um, in Turkey this past summer. Yes, yes. The, the, the starting point of that was that all over southern Turkey, there had been months of demonstrations that were just ignored by these Western prostitutes, right? The, the winners, the many winners of the Goebbels Prize at ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, and I'm sure others. The Goebbels Prize winners were not interested in the fact that all over southern Turkey, there had been demonstrations saying, get these terrorists out of here. We're sick of them. They steal. They threaten us. They, you know, they're dirty. They destroy the tourist trade. And God knows what, from the city of Inchirlik and um, from the port of Iskanderun, I believe, uh, the, these people were, were making a nuisance of themselves. So there's another interesting event. Now, um, concerning this specific one, we have even more uh, interesting things. Um, this is a, an article that comes from something called the Mint Press, which is a website. And the article was up and then it, was, it disappeared for a while. I guess it was hacked.
1: Uh, oh, is this the, 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 the Dale the Dale Gavlak? Gavlak. Okay, let's take a time out. We'll come back okay. because I, I believe that he's a Middle East correspondent for the Associated Press well, as well. I
2: think he's a stringer, huh? Ah, okay. A stringer, a part time. That's the impression I get. Or All right, a former we'll, we'll, AP.
1: We'll talk about this. This is an important article uh, because. Uh, he, in this interview, the Syrian rebels appear to take responsibility for the chemical attack in Ghouta. But we'll, uh, we'll discuss on the other side, Webster Tarpley here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Webster Tarpley stays with us for a few moments yet as we discuss uh, Syria and the prospects for war over there. Uh, we were talking about this um, associated press stringer in the Middle East, Dale Gavlak, and he interviewed a number of doctors and residents in Ghouta and rebel fighters, in fact, and their families. And what did he find?
2: Well, the, the story is that, that there are many different um, groups right, among the Syrian rebels. There are you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand. And remember, they have killed each other on a number of occasions. There was one, one of the, um, the officials of the Free Syrian Army, a guy called, I think his name was Hamami, who was assassinated by the emir of the coastal region of the uh Islamic Emirates of Iraq and Syria, Sham, as they say. So these these emirates, these are warlords. In other words, emirates are like little these little entities, right? The the goal is you're gonna have the NATO and the Empire and the IMF over the world, no nation states and only these little emirs in the Middle East. So anyway they they kill each other. They 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 fight among themselves. So the idea that one of them would not gas some other one is 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 wrong. But the uh, the Nusra and some others get paid directly from Saudi Arabia. And what they seem to have in this area called Huta or Ghouta, right, where this famous incident now is supposed to have occurred, was the the people there report that. Uh, a militant, a Saudi, a terrorist controller. I would say he's a you know he's a, a local terrorist uh, official, but he's a Saudi, and he's obviously bringing money and other supplies. He brings uh, tube-like structures and huge gas bottles. Right? They they have this. Some people see you know propane or some gas that you use for home purposes. Anyway, containers of that size. Right? Tube-like structures and huge glass bottles. So, uh, kids, rebels, you uh, know, young fighters. One of the one of the people in the village says, "My son and 12 other rebels were given these tube-like structures and the huge glass bottles by this Saudi militant, and they put them in a tunnel, and um, my son and the others never came out. Right, 12, 12 of them." Uh, dead now. What? What could it be? The story seems to say, well, they mishandled it, right? But maybe, maybe these things were, were you know, time to have things go off, right? So, it's perfectly possible that the pattern, to the extent that there is one, is that the Saudi intelligence had delivered these charges, right? These containers loaded with uh, with nerve gas into the area, and then either by by accident, which I don't think, but, or by coordinated, you know, timer and, you know, detonator, had these things uh, go off. And the, the, the idea in the area is that the prince, the, the head of Saudi intelligence is, of course, the infamous Saudi, um, the Prince Bandar, right? Bandar bin Sultan, right? Otherwise, Bandar, Bush, Bandar Bush, yes. Right? <laughs> the character, he was here. But watch out for him, because this guy has no loyalties to anybody in the world. He will stab anybody in the back. There's a story circulating that he went to, to Putin, and he said, Putin, you've got to dump the Syrians and betray them. Uh, otherwise, I'll make sure that my Chechen terrorists attack the Sochi Olympics. But if you play along with me, I'll, I'll make sure that there's no terrorism at your your Olympic
1: games so and that was published very, in the very, very that was published guys. in the Daily Telegraph that story
2: right so you you get the idea right so so there's there's a, a a perfectly um credible account by somebody who's not crazy right he's not uh somebody who hears voices or believes in martians or anything but he's an AP stringer and he's there uh and and says this is this is what happened so uh the, the um, there are any number of other things, but that uh, we have now. Kerry, Kerry says, "Oh, I have tissue samples, right? I have blood, urine. I have these things, hair." The problem with that is, what's the chain of custody, and and where did these tissue samples come from? Right? Like Kerry says this morning on his five Sunday blab shows, right? We 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 um, we've got this proof. Yeah, that that's from the Nusra Brigade and Al Qaeda. Forensics laboratory, right? That's, that's essentially from the terrorists. So they, they probably have a way to doctor that with the help of Saudi Arabia. And well, of he
1: the, has proof that there was a chemical attack. We all know there was a chemical, chemical attack. The question is who's responsible? Was, yeah. Who's responsible? That's right. the only question.
2: It? That's the question. All right. So look, I would urge people to mobilize on this. In other words, I would not be fatalistic at all. Uh, I think this, the fact that, that no attack has occurred so far is a real victory, because it, it was going to occur probably around now, that is in the 24 hours now ending, or it might occur later this week when there's no moon, right? That's when they like to strike, right? When the cruise missiles cannot be seen even by ground observers, right? So they, there's no warning. So here, here's what it is. If you're in the United States, This is one of those rare occasions where it makes sense to send a letter, send an email, call the congressman and say, no war, not under any circumstances. And we don't care what the provisos are or the so-called limitations, because once the military action starts, they're going to do whatever the hell they want. They're not going to be bound by, by anything. Now, I suppose you're in Canada. What can you do? I would say Get on the world social media, right? Get on the, the, the great um, you know, sounding board of world public opinion, I would say, is Twitter, and get on there. I, I was able to register for Twitter in about five minutes. If I can do that, anybody can. And what we just need is the gross volume of tweets, right? If you get on there, suppose you don't know you – know, you can get on there anonymously, right? You don't have to reveal who you are, right? You don't have to – worry about your job, get on Twitter, and then start putting stuff out. If you don't know what to put out, I recommend go to Webster G. Tarpley Twitter feed and start retweeting the ones of mine that you agree with, right? And if you follow those, you will also see, you know, if you go to sites that say like Syria or Assad or, you know, Obama, you'll find meritorious tweets that you can retweet, and I think before too long you'll be doing your own, right? And, and, and I hope, you know, I'm, I'm waiting... I can't wait for people to surpass me in quantity and quality. But, right. Uh, Find out you who your MP is. Go and read my tweets of the last week. You'll know just about everything.
1: Right. Find out who your MP is and direct it towards them, uh, their office. Well,
2: Canada has already said no, and no. I would like to thank uh, Canada right, for that. As far as I could see, Harper had said no several days ago.
1: Uh, he has said no, uh, and then we had John Baird, who is, uh, I believe, the minister for external affairs. Uh, you know, saying that you know we action we we must take action. So, uh, my my fear is that it is being sort of bandied about in in uh, the prime minister's office. Still, who knows? I mean, if the United States goes forward, the United State or Canada may you know at some point jump in a lockstep as they often do. Uh, but that, you know, let's not wait for that to happen. Well, let's... in that
2: case, of course, then you want to call, you want to get the MPs informed that the public, the Canadian public, says absolutely not, under no circumstances, and there are no safeguards. So don't tell us about those. Will Obama
1: um, – I mean the, the, the president has said he doesn't need uh, – obviously he does need congressional approval according to the Constitution. In fact, he said it, when he was a senator he would, have, he would impeach President Bush uh, if he didn't go to Congress. Right. And uh, this, for, let me just
2: point – this, this is an interesting thing. The Republicans have learned the lesson of the last impeachment. The Republicans impeached Clinton before he attacked Serbia with the three months of bombing. They've learned something. The Republicans probably kicked themselves. They say if we'd only waited until after the three months of bombing, like six months later, we could have impeached Clinton way back in the middle of 2009. So with Obama, the Republicans are in many ways madmen. I have nothing in common with them. They wish to impeach Clinton by any means they can get. so um, and I, and, and I think this is the th- uh, impeach Obama, right, that they, they, they think that um, they can do this. If he goes to, to, into this war, he will poison and destroy his own relation with his remaining supporters, right, who have already been shaken by the great NSA uh, revelations, right, which are, which are uh, obviously very serious uh, violations of law. So they think that they can, they can get him later. The reason that Obama is going to Congress is that he wants insurance against impeachment? he takes it quite seriously? He can read the writing on the wall just before he made this decision, right Senator Coburn, a supposedly respectable uh, Republican senator from Oklahoma, started talking about impeachment and we've had we 've had a number of other Republicans in the house well and if you more. go back,
1: if you go back, Biden clint Hillary Clinton, and Obama uh, all stated that they would have impeached George Bush if he didn 't go to Congress to uh, uh yeah, you know, to sure. wage war. So, so, they, so
2: he they he Obama takes this this seriously because the Republicans hate Obama more than I, I would say than they ever hated uh Clinton and there are some very ugly motives in there, right? So that I I am not uh going to be a part of that. But the, the thing the thing that I think is feasible to do in the, in the in the very short term is to stop this. In other words, if you looked last week, we have Skull and Bones carry on Monday with an insane foaming war tirade. Skull and bones carry on Friday with another foaming war tirade. And in the middle, Obama makes these rather meek statements. Now, some of this is camouflage, of course, but the way is clear for Obama to say, Kerry, you're an incompetent, you're an absolute bungler, you can't get the U.N., you can't get Ban Ki-moon, you can't get the Arab League, you can't get anybody, so you're fired, right? That's the, the, the Secretary of State is supposed to deliver the coalition. That's what James Baker did. That's what Colin Powell did. Who, who is this guy, right? He can't manage anything. The other person, of course, is the viper, Susan Rice. And I, I regard her abrasive, uh, loathsome personality as a, as a positive force for peace, because <laughs> anybody who has to deal with her begins to hate her and wants to deprive her of the things she wants, and the the story we have here in Washington is on Thursday evening, as the British vote, and you know this is the the finest hour of the British, absolutely, that they voted against this. Uh, Obama began to go wobbly. Kerry tried to firm him up on Friday afternoon with this with this lunatic tirade. Putin, of course, spoke for the first time on Friday morning with a very serious warning that's backed up by things that we don't know yet but there are things when putin says something like that there are um, threats i think in the background or or you know things that russia might do but then you could see that that obama came back from a forty five minute walk with dennis mcdonough his um, the chief of staff in the white house it looks like dennis mcdonough has iced out susan rice so mcdonough is more concerned about obama's per- personal political fortunes rice is concerned about her record as a you know the new Ribbentrop right uh, uh, setting up uh, aggression all over the world that's her her bag so it looks like Rice has been pushed aside uh, and McDonough's in more influential and that's when they said we're going to go to Congress in other words we're going to stall and maybe hope for something to get out of this the the other thing of course is that the the media here are at least grudgingly realizing. That Obama has cut Kerry off at the knees; that he's hung him out to dry. And as we speak tonight, Kerry is hung out to dry, twisting slowly in the wind, as we say here.
1: All right, we're out of time, uh, Webster. <laughs> so let's, uh, yeah, let's hope there's a resounding no from Congress, and uh, Obama heeds that. We'll... Right, but it's the, the the motto is
2: always get active or get radioactive, and this is more applicable now than ever.
1: All right. Webster, thank you so much. Tarpley.net, the website. Thank you. All right. And my website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on, uh, on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth.
0: Conspiracy Show with Richard Seren from Zoomer Radio, AM 740.
1: And away we go. Just one more welcome uh, to KGBR FM in Medford, Oregon, our latest affiliate, which uh, brings the number to 22, I believe. And we've got a few stations uh, in the works. Uh, They're pending. Once the ink is dry on the, uh, the contracts, we'll be making some more announcements soon, we hope, but uh, the Conspiracy Show uh, network, if you will, is uh, growing brick by brick, building it, and uh, as I say, hope to have more good news in the weeks and months to come. Just keep those affiliates coming. Uh, All right. Uh, I want to give you a heads up what's coming up a little later in this hour, before we bring Nelson Thal on, our media scientist, to discuss some interesting biblical prophecies uh, with regards to uh, recently, we lost Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. Who is Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr.? Uh, you may ask. Well, he's a uh, he was a physician uh, who claimed to have handled alien debris from the Roswell UFO crash. And uh, of course, that happened in 1947. And he was 76, and he was doing what he loved best at the time: he was reading a book about. Uh, UFOs. I, I interviewed uh, Jesse Jr. Uh, years ago at another radio station. And uh, over the past, oh, 35 years, I guess, he's appeared on TV shows and he's appeared on documentaries and radio shows like mine, uh, articles, magazine articles, books. He traveled the world, really, uh, lecturing about his experiences in, in Roswell. And his father... It was his father, uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., who was an Air Force intelligence officer and reportedly the first military officer to investigate the wreckage in early July of '47. So Jesse Jr. would have been about 10 at the time, and his father brings home some of this debris, I, I think, in the back of a pickup truck. He wakes Jesse Jr. up in the middle of the night and told his son, you need to come out here and look at this because it's something you will never see again. And uh, the item, I I believe he spread it out on either the living room floor or the kitchen floor, and the item that uh, Jesse Jr. said fascinated him the most was this small beam with some sort of purple-hued hieroglyphics on it. And after initial report, that a flying saucer had been recovered on a ranch near Roswell. Of course, the military issued a statement saying the debris was from a weather balloon. But the Marcel family were told to keep it quiet, and they did for years and years and years. However, when physicist and UFO researcher Stanton Friedman uh, spoke with Jesse Marcel uh, Sr. in the late 70s, he broke that silence. And, of course, Friedman wrote the, the foreword to Jesse Jr.'s 2007 book, The Roswell Legacy. And he described him as a courageous man who set a standard for honesty and decency and telling the truth. Anyway, we will uh, speak with uh, our good friend Victor Vigiani from, uh, from uh, Zealand News Network towards the uh, bottom of the hour, or maybe a little bit later. And also... Paula Harris. Uh, Paula Harris is uh, a journalist who has been covering the UFO ET issue uh, for many years. And uh, they've both spoken with Dr. Marcel. So we'll get their their feedback on um, exactly what he meant, I guess, to the UFO disclosure movement. Uh, We will get to Nelson Thal, our media scientist. We're just waiting to hook up with him on Skype, I guess. And uh, if you're listening, Nelson, get over there, get on that Skype microphone, and uh, my producer, Tim, will get in touch with you. Uh, but I, this is, stems from a, an interesting email that I received from uh, someone. And uh, they actually texted me uh, and said that it's interesting what's going on right now with Syria, specifically Damascus. And if the United States launches a cruise missile attack against Damascus, it kind of lines up with some biblical prophecy, specifically Isaiah 17, Old Testament, Isaiah 17. And I believe it says something about Damascus being destroyed and being cut off. Damascus being cut off from uh, Jerusalem, which is interesting. Uh, supposedly Jeru- uh, Damascus recently sealed all roads; they sealed their roads to Jerusalem in anticipation of some sort of an attack. Uh, but Isaiah 17 saying that Damascus will be cut off. Now I don't know if you can hear this. Uh, oh, that was my Skype on my my iPhone. Nelson is trying to Skype me on my iPhone. Nelson, we're Skyping you from the from. Yeah, from the, radio, uh, from the radio station. So, Nelson, if you're listening, we're Skyping you from MZ Radio. All right. Can you try him again, Tim? All right. Nelson, if you're hearing me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to answer this live on the air here because uh, Nelson is Skyping me on my iPhone, and he's not supposed to be doing that. In any, in, uh, any, any, in any case, we'll, uh, we'll get him here in a second. Oh, we do have him on the phone. OK. All right, a little bit of a communication mix-up. Nelson was trying to call us. We're trying to call him. Do we have Nelson there? Nelson Thal. We're just waiting to we're waiting to hear. Fifteen to 20 seconds, we'll have Nelson. For you, I, I assure you. Nelson, of course, is our media scientist, uh, assassination researcher, but he's also uh, quite a student of the Bible and biblical prophecy in particular. Uh, so we're going to find out what, in fact, Isaiah says about Syria, and uh, there is also, uh, I believe, several verses in the book of Amos which discusses Syria. So is this a fulfillment? Of biblical prophecy if Syria is attacked and perhaps destroyed. Nelson Thal, do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. There we are, buddy. You were trying to call us and we were trying to call you. That's all right. Yeah, so, it shows
3: you we still need to keep the phone lines.
1: Indeed, indeed. So I get this uh, text from someone who says, check out Isaiah. It lines up perfectly with what's going on in Syria, uh, the destruction of Damascus and, and so forth. What can you tell us about... let's start with Isaiah. What does it say about Damascus?
3: Well, Rich, it's great to be on again. Once again, I guess it's midnight, and we can come out and play. The owners of the system have gone to sleep. Indeed. And, uh, you know, as a researcher, we research these uh, these things and don't bring our own opinion to bear on it. And great great stuff on Iran and Syria with Webster.
1: Yes, we talked to uh, Webster Tarpley recently uh, on the program, and so uh, let's look at it from a different angle. I mean, he was sort of looking at it from a geopolitical Uh, Angle and political subterfuge, if you will. Let's let's look at it from a biblical prophecy point of view.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, It's it's interesting to watch because it's certainly given a lot of discussion in the in scripture. You find about what's going to happen to Syria, but um, so much of it is the British American, the Brit Am empires are under attack and losing because of their being under as a result of Jacob's trouble. And uh, so the tribes of Joseph are in a panic mode, and they have to then um, use means necessary to uh, prop up their system, and so far the best way of doing it is to, is to use the vehicle of warfare as a way of strengthening the dollars.
1: Okay, so let's look at Isaiah 17. A Prophecy Against Damascus. Now, it says, See, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. Yes. The cities of Aror, I'm not pronouncing, will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down with no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim.
3: and And, of course, that's London. Ephraim is London? No, Ephraim is Britain and America, well, Britain right now in Canada of Ephraim, but the fortress is London. That's the the fortress also will cease from Ephraim, and that includes the Stone of Scone, right, which is right now in Ephraim.
1: Okay. In that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. Well, I, I don't know if these remaining chapters refer to Damascus, but see, Damascus will no longer be a city, but will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora will be deserted and left to flocks, which will lie down, and no one to make them afraid. The fortified city will disappear from Ephraim, and royal power from Damascus. The remnant of Aram will be like the glory of the Israelites, declares the Lord El- Almighty.
3: And of course, Richard, this is all to do with uh, man's misrule of the planet is being is in the process of being undermined.
1: All right, what what leads us to believe, though, that this specific chapter about Damascus being ruined? Uh, you know pertains to today, I mean, I know you know there 's the possibility of an impending cruise missile attack against Damascus, but Damascus has been threatened before throughout the ages. Why do we think that this time that the the biblical prophecy is speaking to this event in two thousand and thirteen
3: Well Damascus is the oldest city on the planet, one of the oldest that was around at the time of Abraham, even before his name was Abraham when at the time of Abram and it's one of the oldest cities on the planet and so it's very much involved in the misrule of the planet and involved in man's misrule of the planet and the process of it being undermined is what's happening and it doesn't happen overnight instantly although babylon did fall in one night and it's interesting to note that um, the american empire could fall in just one night as well if Babylon could fall in one night so could the United States of America just by having the river of the internet cut off just like uh, the Persians diverted the, the, the Euphrates and the troops marched under the walls of Babylon and in one night uh, the feast of Belt depicts this in one night the handwriting is on the wall they're in the balance and sound wanting and they're, they're defeated and the same thing has happened to America uh, many, many tekel a parse, and they've been weighed in the balance, they've been found wanting, and they're being taken down.
1: Are there other examples uh, in, in the Old Testament? Someone mentioned the book of Amos that talks about the destruction of Damascus.
3: Yeah, it, it is mentioned in Amos, in the first chapter of Amos as well. So there's no doubt that Damascus is definitely going to be the center of violence and the center of world problems, and that's exactly what we're seeing Taking place today it 's right in the center of world problems everybody 's up in arms about what 's going on in damascus
1: so do you do you see this coming then to a to a fruition do you see well, we don't, an, an don't attack know. on damascus it, it
3: doesn 't necessarily happen um, i don 't think Damascus is going to be wiped off the map, and quite frankly, you know Richard, when you really look at it let 's not forget that. We've already had an Iran hostage crisis, and uh, you know, uh, our good friend Mr. Tarpley, his organization put out a tremendous book by Dreyfus, you'll recall, called "Hostage to Khomeini," which basically showed that that whole Iranian hostage thing with, with that you know what I mean by the hostage thing.
1: Yes, seventy nine. Yes,
3: run by the ONI on Pennsylvania Avenue, right out of the ONI, under the nose of the U.S. president. And that was exactly what happened. It's a great book. It's called Hostage to Khomeini, and Webster's group brought it out back in the late 70s, as you recall. So,
1: All right. Nelson, can you hold so on for a second? Iran
3: and Syria are all um, satrapies of the West.
1: Okay, hold on, Nelson, if you could. We'll come back and we'll uh, continue to look at this maybe from a a biblical uh, prophecy standpoint. Nelson Thal on the uh, the line, Skype actually, joining us here on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss biblical prophecy and Syria. Stay with us. Welcome back, Nelson Thal. Our media scientist is with us uh, talking about biblical prophecy and Syria. I received a a text message uh, earlier in the day from someone who says that Isaiah 17 uh, from the Old Testament is uh, coming to fruition right now as as the United States readies to perhaps launch a cruise missile attack against uh, Damascus and punish Syria for what it claims are chemical warfare attacks against its own citizens. Although earlier, uh, we talked with Webster Tarpley, and um, I mean, evidence seems to be mounting that in fact, the insurgents, not the Assad regime are responsible uh, for these chemical attacks. They're the ones in possession of the of the sarin gas and so forth, which seems to be Funneled in from uh, perhaps Saudi Arabia and elsewhere, uh, but Nelson is here to talk about this from a biblical prophecy perspective. So we talked about Isaiah 17 and and uh, uh, how Damascus will be uh, destroyed. Uh, there's also something. It's often called the the uh, the missing prophecy, uh, and that's Psalm 83. What is or Psalm 38? I, I believe it is Nelson. What, what does that say? Well,
3: basically what that says is it completes the story about how um, uh, Scripture says that the Lord would use a a rod to discipline his people, that they were a lawless nation, and he would use the Assyrians as his rod. And uh, uh, because of the duality of the Bible, uh, he already used that, uh, the Assyrians, back in 722, approximately B.C., And now he's bringing them back into captivity again, using the Assyrian rod. And you see that in verse 8, Assyria also has joined with them. And you basically have Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites. You get Amalek and Ammon, and we know those, and Philistia is the the Palestinians. So you basically have the Jordanians and the Palestinians here, and the other Arabs all getting together in what it says in verse 5, for they have consulted together with one consent, they form a confederacy against you. And other good uh, uh, translations of the Bible use that word and uh, translate it as, because of course it's been translated from the Hebrew, um, conf- they translate it in some versions as conspiracy.
1: Oh, against you. And again, we're talking about Psalm 83. 83 I think I, verse
3: 5 is, they form a conspiracy or a confederacy against you, and it gives who it is. And this, of course, is the group that then takes uh, Britain and America and the sons of Joseph into captivity at the end time.
1: So in other words, Psalm 83 is predicting uh, some sort of climactic concluding all-out Arab-Israeli war.
3: That's right, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's right now because these things don't necessarily um, materialize and break surface and come. We've had many wars now in Iraq and Iran, and we've had many wars in the Middle East, and we've had many wars against the Shiites because the Shiites' leader claims divinity, claims to be divine, just like the Emperor of Japan used to do. But the leader of the Sunnis, he doesn't claim divinity and that makes for a big problem because now the Vatican and Rome go after the Shiites over the Sunnis because their leader claims divinity, and only in Rome can that have the emperor claim that.
1: Although this time, I mean, when you look at what's, what's happening and, and who's involved and who is sort of allied with each other, you've got Russia uh, allied with the Syrians. You have Syria allied with Iran and vice versa. And so, if there's an attack, let's say the United States launches a cruise missile against Damascus, that could you could see how that could very quickly escalate. Escalate. Bring in the Russians. Uh, Perhaps you know Syria would would and and Assad has said so that if and create
3: the necessary conditions so that you're on the brink of world war, so someone can step in, one person, and claim and make peace.
1: Exactly, and that would be the Antichrist, according to biblical prophecy. Right. Creating a false, a false peace. Exactly. But the other thing that's really humorous when you really know
3: think about it, Richard is with, with this Syrian thing, just to stay current. You know, uh, Rar was a 9-11 whistleblower, and Bush, he was on his way to New York to f- spill the beans on P-TECH software and how they deceived the air traffic controllers, and Bush had him intercepted and taken... To Lebanon and then to Syria. So, if a nine eleven whistleblower is sent to Syria by Bush, you know that's a satrapy of them of IG Farben and the Rockefeller gang.
1: Yes, and for those who who have short memories, this is back in you know two thousand and six, two thousand and seven. This was a Canadian citizen who was born in Syria. He came to Canada in nineteen eighty seven, and um, I think he very you know intelligent High-level man, master's, master's degree in computer programming, and claims he was. Uh, he was shackled, put in a van, and 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 taken to Syria, where he was he was tortured. Um, and... In Syria
3: now, the way the world works, uh, Richard, is um, uh, Bush has a long list each month of checks that go out to people who are extorting him. He's got a huge extortion lists that he has to pay each month. Don't forget these guys and the the games that they play. They play a. You know, they're always uh, looking to make war and conflict as a way of keeping control.
1: Right. Now, the the U.S. claims that he was simply deported. He was um, – uh, they say he was suspected of being a member of al-Qaeda and they deported him to his native Syria, although we know that the CIA had these uh, – what did they call them? Uh, uh, rendition flights? Yeah. Where they were sending people uh, to various countries, including Syria, where – they were basically tortured by, you know, Syrian intelligence or whomever in trying to extract information. So yeah, it is odd that why would if this in fact was a case of extraordinary rendition, uh, you know, you why would the want US that
3: information to get in the hands, they the Syrians could pick up the phone and call Bush and go, We got this guy here with his P Tech software and he's got all the tapes showing what you did on nine eleven. Send us a check for fifty million to our Swiss bank account but they didn't do that because they're basically a satrapy of that whole bush junta
1: interesting uh, but
3: but you know it's it's a, listen JFK warned we stand on the shoulders of giants JFK warned us that the danger to the republic and the rights of the individual was the secret societies and he, and uh and uh, he warned America of coming enslavement, and that's that's right there in the open.
1: Well, when we, when we talked to Webster Tarpley uh, recently on the program, talking about Syria, he he kept mentioning uh, the Skull and Bones connection. Of course, John Kerry was uh, a member of Skull and Bones. At about the same time, I believe, as as George W. Bush was attending Yale, and he too was tapped to be a Bonesman. Uh, yeah, so these and, and these bonesmen you, keep coming, popping up. Uh, yeah,
3: exactly. And and if you've made, mentioned the skull and bonesmen, don't forget book and snake, uh, the other secret satanic society. And don't forget that the world leaders have been gathering and worshiping Baal at Bohemian Grove for two hundred years. The leaders of the world,
1: right? The, the the this that secret society you just mentioned. The name again.
3: The Bohemian Grove. No, no, no,
1: no. The the uh, I mentioned Skull and Bones. You mentioned another secret society.
3: Well, the, I just said the 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 world leaders have been worshipping. Ah, okay. Bale.
1: All right. I thought you mentioned another society that uh, No, just was world related.
3: leaders. Have right. been, the prime ministers and presidents of the of all the world's countries have been gathering and worshipping that owl, Bale, at, at Bohemian Grove for two hundred years. What other? Alex Jones broke in and taped the ceremony called the cremation of care. And, of course, um, uh, 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 what's his name, did the eyes wide shut. uh, Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick did eyes wide shut, which showed that, that whole power... Source that controls what's going on worldwide. And so it's not like nothing, we're not saying anything that Kubrick isn't saying, and lots of other inter- interesting, important artists out there that have been trying to warn us about these things.
1: Again, from a biblical prophecy point of view, Nelson, what other signs should we be looking for that might indicate that we are, you know, nearing, uh, I don't know, World War III or, or Armageddon? Well, remember
3: this, that uh, that biblically it says that when they say, peace, peace, be careful, then there will not be peace. But we're not living in a time when they're saying, peace, peace, there'll be no... We're living in a time when they're saying, war, war, we're going to war, war, war. I don't really think as much is going to come out of all this right now. I think they're sowing the seeds for future endeavors and... It's all a psyops. This whole thing's a huge psyops, Richard. Right now, I think. I don't think much is going to come of it. It's just a big play on the global stage, all
1: scripted. Okay, but let's let's talk about uh, setting aside what's going on right now for a moment. What are sort of the, the, the signs that we are in the we are entering into Jacob's yeah, troubles well, or the 14 tribulation?
3: Signs. a Great Book with fourteen signs by by Mister uh, Doctor Rod Meredith. Of Dr. Rod Merin's 14 signs of uh, announcing Christ's return, and I think that you that will show you a lot of the things of earthquakes and floods and weather disturbances and all sorts of big, more powerful things. Powers bigger than man are going to start to be used, and I think we're seeing that with the hurricanes and the floods and the uh, Fuji- Fujiyamas, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, uh, as I said, I think really the, the From a biblical standpoint, the Bible basically talks about the um, the fact that man's misrule of the planet is undermined.
1: Well, we're certainly seeing
3: as as uh, as Christ comes. It comes to return to earth well what, you know when the can... kings of the Ar- the kings and Ar- the kings of the earth it says in the Bible are gathering the armies of the earth to do battle at Armageddon, so that's what they're doing all these wars and terrorism and everything helps the nations put the kings of the planet start getting all their armies together. For one big battle.
1: Well, if you look at the weather, you know you can tick that box off. We're certainly getting that the, the, those strange, you know, severe weather uh, patterns. We're seeing, you know, we have the wars and rumors of war. You can tick that box. I mean, one could say that we are fast approaching, if not already uh, heading into the that that period you call Jacob's trouble or the tribulation.
3: Yeah, and the and the great tribulation on a on another level is the is the tribalization. The re-tribalization, because as we re-tribalize, we become less civilized, and therefore the rule of law goes out the window, and we move back into what is being, obviously, the rule of the jungle, is what's taking over on the planet.
1: All right, listen, before we let you go, we just got a couple minutes. I want to get your take on, uh, last week on the program, Jeffrey Steinberg joined us to talk about uh, Princess Diana. Of course, just a few days ago, we had the anniversary, uh, the 17th anniversary of her, what some would uh, describe as her murder. Yeah. Uh, we there was a um, uh, an article that came out yesterday from Sue Reed, who I interviewed in her home in in, in uh, London suburb, for the TV show, talking about Princess Diana being murdered by a British soldier, right? Uh, an SAS sniper, uh, apparently involved. Scotland Yard is looking into this. Metropolitan Police are looking into this. What do you make of it?
3: <laughs> we've um we've said before that um, there was a great it's this is a heinous crime it's no different than many of the crimes which have been documented by William Shakespeare about the house of hanover and the other houses the stuarts etc and um the monarch knew i'm sure the queen realized that once lady Di and charles divorced that um if she had uh, passed away at that point, uh, Charles would not have the ability to lay claim to the throne as strong and powerfully as Lady Diana could, and obviously her brother still can, so there's a lot going on there behind the scenes that uh, are invisible to the, to the media and only visible to those people and mostly the intelligence community and, in the, you know, and who know where to watch and who the people to watch are. But certainly, the, the, the keep your eye on the throne of England and the Stone of Scone. Don't forget the Stone of Scone. Uh, when they moved it from London to uh, Scotland last time, Richard, you and I on another station um, noted it and said, what does it mean? And we said, well, maybe some big shot like Diana or Philip would be taken out. Whenever there's some, that thing moves, there's a vacuum in power, and it causes and triggers an assassination, just like we had in World War One with the uh, Archduke's assassination triggered World War I. But right now, you know, they're saying war, war, war. So I don't think there's going to be the wars right now. They're saying it too loudly.
1: All right, Nelson. I appreciate it, as always. Thank you, sir.
3: Thank you. It was great being on, and uh, uh, we'll speak to you soon. Thank right, you I'll, a lot.
1: Nelson Thought. Good night. Good night. All right, when we come back, our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network and Paula Harris a journalist toiling in uh, the UFO field for many years, will discuss the passing of Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., one of the last live connections to the UFO wreckage at Roswell. When The Conspiracy Show returns, stay with us. Earlier this week, uh, we lost uh, one of the key witnesses to the uh, UFO crash in uh, Roswell, New Mexico, back in July of 1947, Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., Uh, who handled some of that debris from the 1947 crash, Uh, died at the age of 76 doing what he loved best, reading a book about UFOs. Uh, He was found dead at his home in Helena, um, Helena, Montana, Saturday, less than two months after making his last trip to Roswell, New Mexico. And over the last 35 years, he appeared on uh, numerous TV shows, documentaries, radio shows, interviewed for magazine articles and books, traveled the world, lecturing about his experiences in Roswell. And uh, here to uh, tell us more about what Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. meant uh, to the disclosure movement uh, and to UFO research is our good friend Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network. Hello, Victor. How are you?
0: Hello, Richard.
1: This is me here, and I hope you can hear me okay. We can indeed. Thank you for joining us and also joining, joining us on the line from her home in Colorado, Uh, one of the finest journalists working in this field, and uh, that, of course, is Paula Harris. Hello, Paula. How are you?
4: Hi, Richard. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm doing well here in Colorado, and we're going to be talking about a very sad situation for ufology.
1: Indeed. First of all, uh, 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 now this goes to both of you. Just jump in, either of you. uh, Tell us a little bit more about... Uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. I, I, I alluded uh, earlier to you know, the fact that he was you know, about 10 years old when the Roswell crash happened, and his father, who was an, an Army intelligence officer stationed at the, uh, the Roswell Army Airfield, uh, brought all this debris home and, and woke, woke up Jess, a young Jesse in the middle of the night and said, you've got to come see this. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that night.
4: Well, Richard, uh, uh, he told me all about this when he came to Italy, Uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. came to Italy in my last conference that I sponsored in 2007. He came uh, with his family and they wanted to go to Florence and he spoke in Rome and I was able personally to sit with him and talk about this because uh, he was 11 years old and what happened was his father, it was late at night uh, around 11 or 12 when he brought this box home and said to his son and his wife, you're going to see something from out of this world that you'll never see again, and spread all this material on the kitchen floor. And what I learned then, because I didn't know it, because we talked about an I-beam, but there was more than one I-beam. He told me there were like five or six I-beams that that had this hieroglyphics on them that had this, like, violet hue to it. And his father said, you'll never see anything like this again, and then, you know, boxed it up and brought it in. And just very succinctly, I'll just tell you that uh, he, uh, he said my father was an intelligence officer. He certainly wouldn't have brought home pieces of a mogul balloon. And this is so logical, and that's why the, the uh, Air Force's uh, formal statement, even today, is that it was a secret mogul balloon project and the bodies were crash test dummies. So, so, Victor, you can take over from there because, you know, you heard the testimony at the citizen hearing that he and his children did.
1: Yeah, I guess he was okay. too ill to attend that, wasn't he, uh, Victor? The
4: citizen no, he was hearings. there. With oh, the no, he, he oh, he was, was there? Parents. Ah, yeah.
1: I thought it was a video testimony. My apologies. No, no, no.
4: The video testimony was mm-hmm. uh, Edgar Mitchell.
1: Ah, okay. So, so uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. was there in Washington at the disclosure hearings in late April, early May. We're going to hear that clip in a moment. But Victor, did you get a get a chance to speak with uh, Jesse at all at that time?
5: Yeah. Yes, I've uh, like like yourself. Um, I believe on one night we've interviewed him twice actually on the program, uh, Richard. One one night I um, when you gave me the privilege of doing the show, I actually did interview uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. Um, for about an hour. And uh, I recall it very vividly because I was up at the cottage at the time when I did the telephone interview. Uh, by telephone, and it was quite an eye-opener, as as Paula indicated. That you know, it, someone who is you know ten or eleven years old, and one night, uh, your father makes a side trip from a debris field, and uh, drives his 1942 Buick in the driveway, and then hauls out a box, and as Paula said, empties the box out into the kitchen table, and shows uh, them some material from out of this world. You can be guaranteed that this was not just something that was out of the uh, just out of the ordinary, but it was. Was absolutely extraordinary so it was quite clear that not only did the uh, Jesse Marcel Jr as a young boy witness all of this, he saw all of these things unfold and then he was able to retell the story many, many times uh, over over his career as both an intelligence officer and as a medical doctor. And traveling the world, he's uh, been very, very articulate in the way he has accounted himself and stood up for some of the criticism that his father, uh, Jesse Marce Sr., uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., took uh, in terms of the criticism he took in regards to uh, what all of this meant in terms of the debris etc. and the bodies and the, and the different kinds of uh, debris that was was picked up and also too some of the technologies uh that were passed along because of it now when you do hear the the clip um in in a few moments i guess we can get to it. it's about a minute and a half clip at the citizen hearings in washington at the end of april and the beginning of may uh, jesse was very very specific in saying several things about this and he said very clearly that there uh um, the information he got from the person who interviewed him that this was a shadow government. They expended a lot of money to try to keep this thing secret. These are non-elected people who are, in fact, in charge and still are in charge of the debris. And this is something that Jesse Marcel uh, stated very clearly when uh, asked the question by
1: former Congressman uh, Merrill Cook. All right. We'll uh, take a timeout. When we come back, we'll hear uh, the clip from the late Dr. Jesse Marcel, Jr., uh, speaking uh, in Washington at the Disclosure Hearing, uh, presenting this before about five former members of the, the United States Congress. Joining us on the line from Colorado, Paula Harris, UFO journalist, writer, photographer, and uh, Victor Vigiani, of course, the executive director of Zland News Network, as we discuss the passing of Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. And uh, joining us on the line from Colorado, Paula Harris, UFO uh, journalist, photographer, and uh, Victor Vigiani, executive director of Zland News Network. Of course, um, my constant companion when we talk about uh, UFOs and ETs here on the show. We're discussing the the passing of uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, earlier in the week. Now, uh, we're going to play a clip here. Uh, Tim, do we have that ready? This is uh, Dr. Marcel Jr. Sp- uh, speaking at the uh... ufo disclosure hearings in washington uh... back in the spring i was uh, called to washington and uh... there is a gentleman by the uh, name of Dick
6: DeBoss who wanted to interview me when i got to washington and uh... he was in the uh, capitol building Central the center of 228 i do for like he said he wanted to talk to me about, about what i saw in the hospital so i went to the capitol building and uh... very friendly very nice gentleman he said, uh, you know, we won't talk about what you saw in the well. And I said, well, sir, I'm not you know, I'm saying anything I have said publicly already. He said, but I might tell you something. So uh, we went down into the basements, <laughs> several floors down below in the Capitol building, really. and there was this beautiful meeting room. And uh, when I sat down, he sat at the head table. I sat there and he had a legal pad. and there was a book on the table, too. It was called Majestic. Uh, it was a book by Whitley Strieber, and he said, this is not fiction. So he admitted to me right there, this is not fish. This is a story about the Boswell. You know, i fix And I said, I know it isn't. Uh, so when are you guys going to tell the public about this? And he said, well, you know, if it was up to me, I'd have done it yesterday. But he says, it is not up to me. I'm just here to investigate the cost of the investigation, cost of keeping it secret and all that. And to, uh, in reality, there is, and these are his words, uh, there's a black government which is going right but uh, that's what he said. He said, they have control of the degree. They're not elected, and they have limited funds to spend, and they have control
1: of it. You tell me what that meant, but that's what he said. Thank you very much. Paul, I'm sure you've you've, already heard the testimony, but let me just get get you to comment on on what you just heard. Uh, Dr. Marcel, Jr.
4: This is really important testimony, Richard. I was there sitting in the front row during the whole all the citizen, you know, testimony. And I I think, uh, you know, Victor might be interested in this, too. I just got an email from Carolyn Kirkpatrick, who was uh, uh, one of the um, councilwomen there on the panel, and and she said that she was so saddened by the passing of Jesse Marcel, Jr., because she respected and honored the man for his testimony, and she was extremely concerned that we're going to lose one right after another of of the... uh, of the uh, people that testified those four days. And, you know, this is just the first of many that are of a certain age, and we're going to lose these people, and that's what's so darn serious. And I I just personally hope that, you know, those people that were on the panel um, are still around to be able to bring this to the next level before we lose these, these witnesses. And Besides being a personal friend, and it's very sad that he passed on because he was a personal friend, my fear is we still have older people like Edgar Mitchell, like Robert Dean, like a lot of people that have done so much for disclosure. And and I I have a a clip of Jesse Marcel where he says, I hope this happens in my lifetime. And, of course, it didn't. So I'm going to just end by saying I hope this happens in my lifetime
1: well the, the the remarkable thing I find is is uh that here was you know a doctor and and, and, and people try to impugn his character and they tried to impugn the character of his father uh you know distinguished military record but the thing was he didn't have to do this he, he has he had a a reputation uh he didn't have to go out on a limb uh, and, and 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 talk about this he could have kept quiet like he was told to, but he didn't well, I, I think that's a
5: really important point. I mean, he could have very, very simply just, you know, hid behind the bushes and just, uh, um, you know, let things lie the way they did. But uh, unfortunately, he, um, um, he, he was pressed by, or fortunately, I think he was pressed by some sort of internal uh, compulsion to really bring this information forward. And I think one of the reasons why he did it was because his father this is just my own impression, and maybe Paula can you know comment on this too that his father was discredited so widely um, and also manipulated by several uh, people within the uh, United States Air Force at the time actually the United States Army Air Force at the time you know colonel Blanchard uh, among them uh, along with many many others uh, the, his father was discredited and and uh, told to do things and demanded um uh, to do things that really just weren't right, and number one thing, posing with some fake uh material in a picture that's uh, that's supposed to be what was found in the in the field outside of uh, uh, you know the uh, the foster ranch and i'm not exactly sure why Jesse Marcel senior was cajoled or how he sort of even uh, agreed to pose with what he saw. Was the wrong thing, and I guess you can really that really attests to the uh, the, the amount of manipulation and the authority and power and influence of the, the United States government to make people do um, something that's contrary to their own personal integrity. Well, he so had, a, he he had could, a
1: young family. I mean, you've pointed out to me a number of times that there were Secret Service on the ground in Roswell, telling people, if you speak, you know, there's a big desert out there, they will never find your body. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah, so you can tell that kind of pressure really did uh, make certain
5: people do things that they didn't want to do, but because of that kind of pressure and, and pressure on their family and those kinds of threats, I guess really they had no other alternative but to be part of the cover-up in a very unwitting and unwilling kind of way, which is extremely unfort- unfortunate, but that's the way the United States government works. It, the, the level of manipulation at that level is so profoundly uh, powerful that people really have no choice, and th- this this kind of stuff goes on every every single day and it definitely went on a whole lot uh, during that period of time just after what was found on the Brazil uh, by Max Brazel.
1: Uh, Paula, can you tell me more? You you've obviously heard this before. We've heard it from uh you know people like Paul Hellyer talking about this shadow government that's keeping a lid On the uh, the UFO file, and and this is what Jesse Marcel Jr. talked about in the in the hearings. That this is what he ran up against. You've heard this this from other. Well,
4: this is the same warning that that Eisenhower made when he said, "Be careful of the military industrial complex." What he said was that this technology, and you know, Richard, they're not going to throw it in the trash if they find a crash saucer. You know they're going to try to figure out how it works, and you know they're going to be fascinated with the propulsion system. And we're talking 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Uh, and and, and what, they, what, what had happened was that they, in the effort to back engineer this stuff, in the effort to, and we won't even go to back engineering craft in Area 51, and that's another big story that just came out that Area 51 exists. Well, we knew that. Uh, And the thing is that that you're going to uh, farm this out to to private companies that have a vested interest in this. And that's, I think, what they mean by the shadow government. They don't mean necessarily the Congress. I think the Congress doesn't know. I think a lot of uh, elected officials, certainly those people that were at the citizen hearing, their jaws dropped. They had no idea this was real. So I think what we're talking about is, the ones that are making money off this technology they are keeping it hidden that are uh, siphoning funds uh, to to do these black ops programs and uh, what's interesting and I'm going to add this is that when Jesse testified, he had Denise Marcel and she's his daughter that called me about his her father dying, and uh, Jesse Marcel was third with him, so he had his two children and him who uh, uh, who testified at the citizen hearing, and the two kids talked about their grandfather talking about this to them when they were little kids, because the grandfather had to live with this secret, the burden of truth. Uh,
1: we just have a few moments, but uh, can either of you talk to me about the work that, that Jesse, uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. did, working with artists to try and reconstruct what he saw in those eye beams and the hieroglyphics? I'm not... Yeah, I'm not too familiar with uh, the specifics of the exact...
5: um, uh, He he said that there were more than one I-beam, that's for sure. And I know that the one I-beam that he did see uh... was replicated um, and i'm trying to think back as to exactly who did the the replication for him but there were a couple of others i believe it was fabricated yes that's right it was miller johnson of uh, albuquerque new mexico who helped um... jesse marcel junior actually f- refabricate uh... the one of the beams that he saw and the, the refabrication that, uh, that that Johnson did, uh, I know Jesse Marcel, um, Jr. said it was a very, very accurate um, re-representation of what, what he saw. The symbols on this very, very small, almost 18 to uh, maybe 20 inches long I-beam uh, with these small hieroglyphics on it. So. Um, that that's something that they refabricated and I think it uh, well represented what he saw in addition to that not only um, uh, was it just the foil um, that, that, that he made comment on uh, because back in 1996 I, I visited Corona myself and I spoke with Lu, uh, Louise Proctor who um, uh, Max Brazel actually brought some of the foil too and they sat on their front step and they tried to pound a nail through this stuff and tried to bend it and Louise Proctor was very very clever Clear to me when I when I spoke with her that there is just no way this stuff uh, uh, was was of this earth. They just could not do anything to it. So all of these things that, that were brought into the into, uh, and onto the kitchen table of the Marcel home um, back in 1947, you, you can be sure that. That, that stuff was not made of this earth, and the United States government has gone a long, long way to covering it up, and to a lot of expense, too. If it was just foil, why would they ask Jesse Marcel Jr. Uh, to go to a, a room in the Capitol building and be told that um, the, the book that Whitley Strieber wrote about the, uh, the Roswell question was not, was not fiction? Um, these people are going to extraordinary lengths to cover up something that was, in fact, real.
1: Uh, this foil that you mentioned Victor, it, it also had another unusual quality. Was this the foil that when you crumpled it up, it basically had it, it snapped back to its former shape?
5: Yeah, uh, the reports that we have and, and I and having visited um, uh, the, the the actual uh, uh, local bar and spoke to people back then that the folklore is, and and of course, talking to Louise Proctor again, you could really kind of scrunch this stuff up. Um, and and it would just zip back or pop back into its original form with no creases in it. And people tried to drive nails through it. They tried to cut it. They tried to burn it. And there was no way that any kind of external force that was used on it was successful in changing this stuff's shape or or form. So, um, you know, you get that kind of uh, uh, material way back then. I mean, I could understand possibly that stuff being fabricated now, uh, maybe But not likely. But back in 1947 or before, there's just no way that that stuff was a product of of conventional technology. So, uh, in essence, and and also too, you know, when you get two or three hundred army, you know, soldiers marching through a field, uh, you know, arm lockstep, arm in arm, picking up little pieces of this stuff, um, you can be sure the United States government has gone out of their way to cover this this information up. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind, and I'm, I'm sure that Paul would agree that the United States government is in possession of of off-world material and they still for some reason will not uh, let the public have access to this information.
1: All right, just about uh, 30 seconds. uh, uh, Paula, uh, a final word on uh, Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr.
4: Well, we'll miss him. Uh, The UFO community will miss him. He's one of the courageous ones. One of the ones we call the heroes. And let's not forget his citizen uh, hearing testimony
1: All right, Paula Harris uh, a new revised edition available of your book UFOs How Does One Speak to a Ball of Light Uh, you can get an autographed copy and uh, that can be ordered through PaulaHarris.com and Paula is P-A-O-L-A P-A-O-L-A Harris.com thank you for this Paula
4: thank you Richard
1: Victor as always my friend thank you we'll talk to you soon Richard bye bye All right, Tim Spreen, thank you for production. Back next week with a brand new show. I'm sure 9-11 will will figure large in that program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.